Do you want to look handsome as fuck? Well, then you should try Combat Comb Over for your hair and your face and your beard. And then once you have all that additional swagger, you need something to carry it around in. Use the Nut Ruck by Arbor Arms. And while you're uh, carrying that Nut Ruck, you should also remember to keep yourself as fresh as possible because you never know what might happen when you're looking that good. So keep yourself some body powder from Hollywood Powder Company. Use our discount code SMOKEPIT on all of our sponsors to save yourself some money. Welcome to the Smoke Pit. Today we are joined by former WWE pro wrestler, NXT wrestler, uh, Steve Macklin, also a former uh, infantry Marine, once Marine, always a Marine, but they don't pay us anymore. Isn't that right? Nope. Only for the VA. <laughs> yeah, the Department of Veteran Affairs pays me, but not the Marine Corps. Exactly. <laughs> they can only uh, get so much of my time. So uh, welcome to the show. Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's fun. like I said earlier, finally good to meet face to face too through this and talking and getting to uh, shoot the shit around the smoke pit. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, you had definitely a very um, interesting journey in life. Uh, some, if, if, if someone were to tell me, you know, when I was 16, that, uh, uh, you know, you were going to end up as a, as a pro wrestler one day, I probably would have shit myself because I, I think we mentioned this earlier. I went to watch a SmackDown episode when I was a kid and, uh, you know, I was poor, a little street urchin and the only seats we could afford were like behind the tight Tron. And so when the pyrotechnics would go off, we'd practically lose our eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember you telling me, cause it's, it's funny. I had uh, the similar seats. I remember, uh, Meadowlands used to be the Continental Islands arena. Now it's the eyes. I don't even think it's used anymore, but I went to so many events there, live events and TV specials there for Raw and SmackDown back in the day. And uh, that's usually where the cheap seats were, whether you're their upper deck or right along the Titan Tron where all the pyro went off. And lo and behold, uh, I love pyro and I'm still deaf from the Marine Corps too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If anyone from the VA, uh, specifically Tanner, is listening, uh, you know, hearing perfect when we went into the military, uh, it was in the military <laughs> when things got loud. <laughs> That's where I got my tinnitus from. Yeah. So what, uh, what made you kind of look to the, uh, the Marine Corps when uh, you were first thinking about uh, joining? I know you were kind of from the age where, uh, you know, 9-11 had just uh, happened, you know, within the last few years. And there was kind of like that idea that if you were like an able body, like young man, like a lot of people were kind of looking at you like, hey, like, when are you going to join the military, you know? Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, Rutherford, New Jersey, in the Meadowlands, uh, right outside of New York City. And um, when 9-11 happened, it was my freshman year of high school. And it was like one of those things where it just hit that area and it hit the world. Obviously, it struck a chord with everybody. And it was one of those things when it happened, it kind of made me motivated to eventually enlist at some point because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was good at football and I thought that was a route. And then once college was kind of coming knocking my senior year, I was just like, all right, well, what are my other options? Uh, but I also come from a military family as well. Uh, my dad was Army. My uncle's a Marine. Uh, and then on my mother's side, uh, my dad was or, uh, her dad was uh, Army as well. So it's just been instilled in my family. And then growing up watching movies, of course, like Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, just I don't know, running around with fake guns, taking the orange caps off so they looked as real as possible. Because that's all I wanted to do was just act like a giant kid all the time and act like I was going to war. So uh 
I feel like uh, the the commercials are great for the Marine Corps, but I feel like the most powerful recruiting tool is having a family member who served because like they they'll definitely guilt you. Yeah, and especially that my dad was Army, it made me want to go Marines even more to be even better. So that was same here. My dad was also Army. Uh, yeah, my dad was a paratrooper, so it was the best part about it was to just kind of wish he was around nowadays to where I could rub it in his face. But yeah. That, yeah, no, it was great because uh, I got denied when I put in for it uh, after our first tour. I was like, hey, can I go to jump school? They instantly said no. It's like, oh, okay, that's good to know. Me as a Lance Corporal and then just about to pick up Corporal. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. You have to be a sergeant or higher. I'm like, all right, cool. Good to know. Good to know. God forbid I wanted to further my career. Yeah, exactly. You know, they um, they they told me that I, I wasn't eligible for promotion despite, you know, ha- having everything qualified, uh, great fit reps. They said that I uh, didn't have a B billet and that um, I would be more promotable if I hadn't deployed so many times. And they gave me uh, orders back to 29 Palms. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you just said I wasn't promotable because, you know, I, I didn't uh, do a, a B billet and I deployed too much. Like, aren't you think you're going to send me maybe to like an area where I had the opportunity to develop myself? And after that, I was just kind of like, no, thanks. You know, like I'm just getting out. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where you just you're always going to get told so many no's until you can get one yes. And that's that's life in general inside the Marine Corps, outside in the real world as well. Yeah, persistence is key. And you um, you joined. And what was your MOS? I was a 0331 machine gunner. So uh, rock on. Oh, I fell in love with that SOI because uh, I remember I'm like sitting there like, oh, yeah, you're 03XX. I'm like, of course, being a dumb boot, don't know what that is. I just knew I was infantry. And then uh, after that first month, like, yeah, you get to pick a specialty, what you want to do. And then they're like, you can do the work with machine guns. I was like, yep, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And I remember just being an idiot too, just because I love working out. I love just, just being out doing stupid things out in the field. And it was always fun. And especially doing gun drills as a boot, everybody thought that was like a hazing tool. And I loved them. I, I was like, I get in better shape and you're letting me work out and do cardio type thing. So just, and learn at the same time, my craft. So it was always fun. Yeah. And you're um, uh, yoked too. Like I know you're, you're over six foot, unless that was just like a, one of those billing things where they, they bill you as six foot, but you're really, I'm, like, I'm at six foot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time I saw they had Eddie Guerrero at six foot and I was like, you gotta be like, no, like absolutely. Yeah, some numbers are skewed sometimes, but yeah, for me, I've always kind of stuck to being the natural of where I'm at. Cause I'm at six foot two thirty, And then even in the Marine Corps, I was always kind of that way. Yeah, of course, you know, uh, the best machine gunners are uh, Irishmen with uh, O in their last name uh, or people that just happen to be six foot and over 200 pounds. I bet you uh, bet you got taped a lot. I did. Uh, so the BCP program uh, was always the best. And we had actually uh, Captain Snipes was our uh, company commander. Every time we go in there and I'd be standing there on the scale, he'd just be like, get the fuck out. Okay. <laughs> You're, you're built like a pro wrestler, just super jacked, abs, traps, like all that. Like, I, I don't say I would find that offensive. No, the best was I used like to on my friggin' uh, my camis. That was the pain in the butt. If I'd wear a smaller uh, blouse at that time, it was always uh, I had to cut the sleeves so that I could actually roll them for the ta- uh, the desert camis during the year. And of course, anytime they go sleeves down, I'm like, ah, got to go grab another one. Sorry. <laughs> Get my field kit out real quick and sew it up. You spent an enlistment in you did two tours to Afghanistan and um, one was in Helmand province and the other was in Marja. Mm-hmm. And so out of those, uh, out of those two deployments, like, although they were to the same country, I'm sure they were probably quite different. Uh, what was the biggest difference between your first and your second deployment? 
2009, our push into Helmand, we were there from uh, May to November of 2009. And that, the biggest difference was ROEs when we first got there. Um, obviously, we're the spearhead back into Afghanistan at that time uh, for Operation Kunjari. And 2-8 was the head of it, and it was great. Um, I find that as the better deployment just because of not as many IEDs, more, more contact, obviously, in that aspect of getting shot at and whatnot. But I loved it as a weapons company and as a cat team, it was great because we're just pretty much we're recon for the entire battalion. And we would just screen the Western desert, go out for two, three weeks, come back for two days, go out for two, three weeks. And just, that was it. We just kind of went up and down the snakehead in Helmand province of uh, the one river and pretty much just added aid to echo company, Fox company and golf company. And anytime they took contact, we'd patrol down to the river and get whatever they had coming out uh, from where they were at or opposite other way. If we took contact, they'd patrol towards us. And then that's how kind of we worked that area pretty much in the Garmisher district. And yeah. then, which was a lot of fun. I, it, it taught me a lot, call for fire and all that. And learning how to do that actual in combat situations was fun. And uh, the basics ways of doing that was calling the loom at night and having Artie there and then even calling in just, it was awesome. The first deployment was great. A lot, granted, it wasn't as stupid as that sounds. It was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, we did lose some guys, uh, which was obviously one of the things you don't want to have to deal with, but it happens. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of hard that you, you have to sometimes. And I, I see vets do this where you kind of feel guilty about parts that you've enjoyed because of things that have, have happened. But it, I just always kind of remind myself that, you know, if I was the one that took the one, uh, the round between the running lights, I would want everybody else to still be able to, you know, enjoy that fire mission or that close air support or something. Yeah. And that was what the best, like, I don't know, our platoon was so tight and uh, weapons company and we were just having, we were called heavy guns, obviously. And we we're just all in trucks and we were, we took pride in uh, what we did and we, that buildup was uh, so great. And our chain of command that year was just phenomenal. Um, our first Sergeant Payne, granted he lived up to his last name of Payne, but um, he did everything we needed to do in garrison. But once we got into country, it was just none of that shit mattered. We were all there to get the job done and do what we had to do. And then once we were back home, everything was taken care of and, they made sure everything was good. And then and it's kind of funny how it flip sides to my second deployment of how chain of command just changed at weapons company and, uh, at two eight and um, was just very different. A lot of green guys, um, some bar bars coming out of, uh, and here you have Lance corporals who have more combat experience than your own platoon commander. And it's a lot different. And it's a different hassle for me, especially at that time too, it was different to see how the interactions would be and how you have to listen and when you have to speak up and kind of what makes sense. Um, but learned a lot. And Marja, again, I hated it uh, just because the IEDs, it was very boring uh, at times. Um, but obviously that's deployment. You being in Iraq, I can only imagine uh, staying on post and being bored. Uh, but us for being in vehicles and having to constantly mind sweep and doing all that with just, uh, it was just, was boring, but also hectic at the same time because we really didn't take as much contact as we did in the first tour. We didn't really have many IEDs in Iraq. It was mostly uh, like 155 shells or triple stack, like tank mines. And we found one drum of HME on the very last mission on our second deployment where Operation Liberation occurred. 
uh, kind of an inside joke for the podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll have to retell that story sometime, but the long and short of it was my buddy decided he wanted to free a cow from a, a local farm and it did not go well. Sounds about right. We, uh, we once stole a camel, uh, that was randomly out in the desert one time and it had both uh, legs. I have pictures of it on my phone. My buddy Stroud McCaslin and I, and, uh, we had Sergeant Wilgis with our, us at that time, our section leader, and he was so pissed because we took our uh, combat dog's leash and we went and got the camel out in the middle of the desert. Oh, that's <laughs> hilarious. Stuck with us. And uh, it was just, yeah, he was so pissed, but we didn't get, we were at the, towards the end of our tour and just did not care anymore. Yeah, I, I, I get that. There's, there's definitely a level of give a fuck that only exists in the last two weeks of any combat deployment. And it's just like, what's the worst they're going to do? Leave me here? Like, <laughs> And that's the funny thing, too. We tried to cross-deck. My buddy Stroud and I, uh, we tried to cross-deck with Tutu, who ripped with us. And our unit said there's no cross. Like, they weren't letting anybody stay just because of casualties we did take and then the way that the deployment was. But I wanted to stay my first tour. I was like, why go back when we're already in the groove and I can help these guys and I know the area. Yeah, particularly when like if, if what you were saying, like there was some good hooking and jabbing uh, when I went to Afghanistan 2011, uh, for the most part, all the gunfights were over. We only got shot at like maybe twice the entire, maybe three times the entire deployment. And it wasn't accurate. We didn't take any casualties and everything else was just IEDs. And I, and I had volunteered for that deployment. I was like, man, if I if I had known it was going to suck this much, like I, I might have tried to get on with another unit. Yeah. Uh, like again, I, I just hate IEDs. I don't think anybody ever really understands it uh, compared like that's just those damn pressure plates and just sitting there in those canals waiting and just mine sweeping into the V sweeps, having to use the sickles that we had at one time. And you just, somebody thinks they see something granted. It's the best way to do about it though. Is like, if somebody did see something, yes, check it. But at the same time, like, Oh, come on, just who gives a shit, just stomp on it and see if it is one and then just move on. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember uh, getting done with a patrol and our engineer, uh, I think this was in Iraq, and so it was all uh, just mines at that point, like personnel mines, vehicle mines. And we get back and like the um, I overhear the combat engineer who was sweeping at the head of the patrol saying like, yeah, the batteries died like four hours ago. I just didn't want to get yelled at. <laughs> That's, fun. That's absurd. Uh, but what's even more absurd is we, we were trained by engineers uh, for minesweeping at Camp Lejeune. And then we deploy, and then here we are. We're supposed to have attached engineers, but no. Hey, we're going to teach how to mine sweep. We're the Thor. Learn how all this stuff works, and obviously, Semper Gumby on that. Always flexible on learning everything and doing everything that's possible. But you're just like this is a actual a job, and here you have us getting taught how to do it. That's great and all, but a crash course for a, a week isn't going to get me as the best mine sweeper in the world unless you're over there doing it all the time. Yeah, brother, man, I, I completely agree with that. And you kind of have to find a bit of a sardonic humor for it. I remember I had this um, this sickle. It was like a telescoping, uh, like I think it was like a 12-foot pole. And, uh, and it had a you know, little hook on the end and it had like various hooks that you could change out. But it was like the one hook's good enough. And so I would like extend it out. And then like you think you see something and you're just kind of like dragging at the earth, hoping that you... Uh, that you know you you find something uh because it's better to find something than not to find something because to me the scariest part of being out on combat patrol was it being quiet because when an ied went off or a rocket got shot at us or you know we got took fire like boom okay now we know what the threat is now we initiate our sops now we know what to do we've trained for this like it's 
it's better to have a purpose than it is to be stagnant. So the times where it's just quiet and you're doing like a security halt, like those are always the most nerve wracking to me because it's like, you don't know where the spotter is. You don't know where the trigger man is. You don't know where the, uh, you know, the, the sniper is. Yeah. Complacency kills was always the one thing said to everybody all the time. So that was always the pain in the ass too, especially in Marja uh, with a lot of the roads, they're very narrow like roads, but then with the canals on the side, we're a pain in the ass trying to get certain companies and going back and forth. And uh, you never knew because you'd see somebody walking around in a canal. You're like, all right, well, stop the patrol. You see who they, what they're doing. You try to figure out what's going on. And it was always the pain in the ass. And that's where we get out V-sweep and see what happens on that. And, and uh, the, mine, the mine roller was always a pain in the ass in Lead Vic. And it's funny. I was always Lead Vic on my first tour and my second tour. And we never got hit. Knock on wood. Uh, <laughs> Could eventually happen, I don't know, somewhere down the road one day. Who knows? Yeah, the way the world down the street, I see a, a discarded nine volt and a fucking turkey baser of adrenaline hits my arm. But I'm like, I got to remind myself, it's just, you know, street trash. It's not like the power source of, a, of an IED. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Like, it, like again, as boring as it was, we still had good times. Uh, there was always good times on deployment. We actually had a gym in, at uh, Fob Hansen, which was nice crappy little gym at first. And then towards the end of deployment, they redid it. And I was like, wow, thank you for the last week of the deployment to just get here and uh, relax. Cause even when we ripped with uh, the next unit coming in, a lot of us didn't have to really leave the wire as much for like a week or two. Uh, it, it's crazy to look back at those times and think about, uh, you know, where you were mentally. And if you, uh, and you know, not, not to, not to armchair quarterback it. Cause obviously, you know, you know, there's, certain things that we'd like to change as far as like casualties but outside of that realm if you could go back and tell yourself anything from your first deployment or for leading into your second deployment as to like kind of give yourself some advice or something like what would it be uh enjoy it more i don't know enjoy the time as weird as that sounds just because like I still miss Afghanistan in a weird way every day, almost there's always a moment where I'm like, fuck Afghanistan was just so much easier in life. Cause you didn't have to worry about anything. <laughs> well, obviously you did, but like, it was just one of those things where I don't know, just enjoy the lessons that you're learning now because they're going to help you along down the road when everything could always be worse is one of those things I always say to myself or even to my girlfriend, like, don't worry about it. It could be worse. Like it's just let a round go down range and you'll figure it out type thing. Yeah, that makes sense. I, um, I, I get that. There's a lot of times that I, I find myself enjoying what I was doing a little bit too much, which is yeah. why I miss deployment so much. But I think I would tell myself to take more pictures. Um, although I do have, I'm very fortunate that I have a couple dozen pictures of my, my various deployments. Uh, I always feel like that I could have taken more, uh, particularly with all the downtime that you do spend just kind of like sitting around and taking pictures with, you know, um, people that I served with because it is uh, a very rare blessing that I think that I, I was able to, um, to receive in life is that a few of the good pictures that I took, I will still see them as people's profile pictures 15 years later, 10 years later. And, yeah. you know, especially when, you know, like veterans day comes around and everyone changed their profile picture or, you know, posts like a throwback picture on their, on their wall. I, I kind of feel very blessed that I, you know, like I was able to kind of like capture that moment for that individual and, uh, you know, give them a picture because like a lot of people don't think about taking pictures in the moment. But I talk to people all the time. They're like, yeah, man, like I, I wish that I had more pictures of like the squad or the fire team, you know. 
Yeah, I agree on that. I wish we had uh, my uh, cat one. I wish we had more pictures from my first uh, tour because our second, we had two platoons, obviously cat one and cat two in heavy guns. And um, they, I feel like my buddy Reigns had more photos. I had a lot of photos and videos and stuff, but more of my photos are off everybody taking a dump <laughs> just because we would catch it. And then when, once we got home, it's just like we put it up on Facebook because we're all idiots. And it's just stupid digs at each other and make fun of each other. But we'd always try to catch each other in moments where uh, it's just fun, had fun with it. But uh, to be fair, I do have plenty of photos from both tours. I just like, again, though, wish we got more videos. Like, at least I wish I got video footage of just us kind of doing things. That would have been a lot more beneficial too to kind of explain instead of just having to sit with a photo and just be like, this is what this happened this day. This happened this day. <laughs> yeah it just it brings back the memories which is great but it's at the same time i'm like i just don't want to share it you just watch it and leave me alone yeah i get that <laughs> and it is it is kind of uh funny that you mentioned that because i i found an old uh hard drive that i was able to to well an old laptop and i was able to get to the hard drive on it and find like like a thousand more pictures uh, not just of myself but just like that i had like gathered from everyone because i was in uh, Cat Red in 3-7. I was in weapons company for Afghanistan, although I'm an 0-3-11. They're just like, oh, we need a um, a section leader over here. So they just sent me and I was like, okay, you know, Semper Gumby. And uh, I, I found these pictures and I sent one to one of my, uh, one of the boots of that deployment and it was him like taking a shit. And then, you know, sure enough, he shared that on his social media and it's like, good God, like have fun explaining that to your civilian friends who don't understand, you know, like, oh. <laughs> Like I posted one time as a throwback on my Instagram of me shitting in a canal and everybody's like, why would you post that? I was like, cause I want you to just see what we had to like, just that I was just made me laugh. I was like, I look back at those times where we're on patrol and it's like, I got to take a shit. <laughs> and like, that's not even half of it. Like, you know, you're it's, it's hot as hell out. It's humid. There's bugs. Your buddies are throwing rocks at you and, you know, calling your names. Like you're just trying to take a shit in peace and, <laughs> you know, and like Afghan kids throwing rocks at you. Yeah. <laughs> That's even better. You know, I, I, I appreciate that. You know, it's the, the Marines and the locals just coming together to throw rocks at Steve Macklin. Who's taking a shit, you know, like, yes. And I even loved it even more when you'd see that one little Afghan redhead and you'd be like, ah, the Russians got you. Ah, <laughs> your dad's name is Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's, yeah. Such bad humor. I'm a very dark humor person. Obviously we're all Marines. So we all know. Yeah. That. Yeah, eventually, uh, as with all things, uh, your your military career comes to an end. And I, I tell everyone, I was like, even if you do 20 years, you'll only be 38 when you get out. So please remember that there there is a life outside the military. You're uh, doing professional wrestling. So like, walk us through, Like, was that something that you th thought you were going to do while you were still in the service or did you just kind of stumble into it? Yeah, it was always one of the ideas just uh, was brought to my attention from one of my buddies, Jarrett, growing up. I was home. I uh, went to go get drunk with my buddies and he's like, Hey, my buddy from WWE is here. You want to meet him? I'm like, sure. And uh railroad cafe in uh, East Rutherford and Darren Young's there. And he's just like, we sat there and we talked and I'm just talking wrestling with him. And uh, it was just kind of cool. Cause he put the ideas like, well, think about it when you get out. He's like, try the Indies and see how you feel about it. I'm like, all right, cool. And uh, that always kind of stuck with me because I was always still a fan. Uh, even at that time, I'd be the one watching WrestleMania on a laptop and in the barracks. But um I got out, I uh, started going to school using the GI Bill at Rowan University, and I found the Monster Factory in Paulsboro, New Jersey, which is about 30 minutes from where our parents lived. Um, my parents were helping me out at that time, let me live with them while going to school and saving more money. 
till I got on my feet. And then, uh, yeah, I started wrestling at the monster factory. Uh, I was there for about a year and a half until they had a tryout seminar with Joe Briscoe, who was a talent scout with WWE at that time. He came in, saw me, we talked for about an hour and a half before the seminar. And then we had the seminar and the tryout had a few matches there. And then we had a show later on that night. And uh, he said, don't go anywhere else. He's like, don't take any more bookings, stay here, just keep training, do the fundamentals, worry about the basics and uh, we should be all right. I'm like, okay, cool. Why wouldn't you listen to that? Um, first time a recruiter never lied to me. <laughs> so so um, about a few months later that August, I had a tryout of 2013. He was there in July at the Monster Factory of 2013. And then August, I had my tryout. Uh, came down here to Orlando, Florida, where the performance center just opened that year in July and had my tryout. And for three days, just went through pretty much another version of boot camp, but in wrestling. And uh, Bill DeMont ran a tight ship at that time at the PC. And I thought it was great because I hurt. I was in pain, I, but I trained for it and I was ready for it. And uh, at October of 2013, I got the call as I was an extra at a Raw and a SmackDown um, that I got hired. And then I started here in January of 2014. I moved, packed up everything I had, and uh, yeah, been ever here ever since. Right on. So it's uh, just a great story of just kind of like uh, being in being in the right place at the right time, making the right connections, and then applying your uh, your your characteristics of hard work and determination and uh, perseverance until you were able to uh, to achieve that dream much that's just the one thing too is like it was funny when i got into wrestling everybody's like oh you're on the gas i'm like no i just work out that's what pro wrestlers do right yeah um, like, <laughs> like a lot of like you see on the indies a lot of guys like that are the, the weekend warriors in the sense of wrestling because wrestling and the military are very similar and I, i've said that before in an interview i did with uh, the miami herald and people came at me afterwards like there's no way it's similar i was like no it's a lot of hurry up and wait Everything is waiting yeah. on somebody else to tell you something to do or things change at a drastic moment and you have to work and adapt to it. And it's just one of those things where I'm lucky enough to where the Marine Corps gave me that tool and I'm sure it gave you as well. And most Marines where you just like, all right, like I said earlier, it could always be worse, whatever. So you just kind of do it. You had a, a fairly lengthy career. I uh, I was with NXT for six, uh, six and a half years and I was with WWE for seven and a half years total. Wow, that's um. Now, if 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 you had to say which career, the military or or pro wrestling, uh, makes you reach for that bottle of uh, Tylenol in the morning more, what would you say? Wrestling, yeah, heavily, yes. Uh, <laughs> no, it takes toll, well, and that's the thing is, like, I try to tell everybody, everybody all the time, but like, oh, but it's it's not real, right? I'm like, no, it's real on the body. Obviously, it's choreographed. It's not choreographed. You go over spots, you do what you need to do, but it is athleticism it is takes a toll on our body. And it's just like anything you watch in a movie. It's a story. You're trying to tell a story, make people feel things. When I was in high school, I, I couldn't get enough of uh, that show. What was it? Tough enough. Yeah. Where like triple H was running the boot camp, and uh, my buddies and I, we had our own little backyard wrestling ring and uh, you know, we were doing our bumps and our drills and turnbuckle work and all that stuff and it was just kind of a way for us to you know have a few beers and beat the shit out of each other over the summers yeah i was the kid who was throwing himself off his garage because of mankind so uh, yeah uh, that was always fun because my mom would be yelling at me and here i am making tables during the winter or just tables out of just crappy picnic stuff i found in the out on the curb sometimes outside of people's houses i'd bring them back home and then i just find a way to wrestle and have fun in the backyard with my buddies 
it is it is kind of a, a close knit community, whether it be something where you're doing uh, something that's more combative, like, say, you know, wrestling or jujitsu or, um, you know, training where to to take cues for a certain match or something like the military where you're doing like a hike or like a, a five mile green on green run, you know, as fast as you possibly can. Like it, it builds camaraderie through shared suffering. Oh, yeah. It's like, again, like I said, it's very similar to the military world just because it's you're in a locker room, you're sharing a locker room with the guys. And you just once you wrestle with somebody in a ring, you kind of end up having that bond. And it's the same on the deployment. It's the same when you're doing field ops, and even in the Marine Corps. Like once you kind of connect with those bonds and you're learning what you're doing, like I always try to put the mindset, even like in the Marine Corps with boots, it's the same in wrestling. Everybody's green. You have to treat everybody that, that way. And most people don't know better. And I used to hate when a few people like I would skylight people and just, just to choose somebody out in front of hire because they wanted to look good. And then I always love to pull somebody aside. I'm like, Hey, what the fuck are you doing? Like, and I always found more respect in that. Cause that's how I had some of my leadership res- like respect me in that way. And I'm just like, I didn't know any better. And most people don't know any better when they are doing something wrong. The same as in wrestling, nobody knows any better. You just, you're learning as you're doing things. You're not going to be perfect. And uh, that's yeah. where the lottery kind of builds the bonds between everybody. And I've had, like, it's funny how my friendships in wrestling are very similar to my friendships in the Marine Corps. Granted, deployment friendships where we see each other. Not, it, it always feels like it, we picked up off the last day we saw each other. But now in wrestling, we see each other all the time. When you're down the road, you always say hello. And it's enjoyable to just have and share a beer. Yeah, that's um that that sounds like it. It probably made for some amazing memories uh, over your, uh, you know, I guess seven and a half years uh, uh, career with with this organization. Uh, what what were some of the things that were most memorable to you? Uh, being able to wrestle in arenas in front of my parents uh, that was always cool because here I am as a little kid, them taking me to live events and stuff. And for my mom, first match to ever see me in front of a live crowd in an arena up in uh, Connecticut for Takeover Twenty Five with NXT. And um, I didn't tell her that it was a ladder match until she learned at bell time that day. (laughs) So of course, like I just knew I had to keep her away from being scared the entire time, but for my parents to be front row for that and afterwards to be in the back and to meet triple H my boss at that time. And just to meet my, see my friends and see the camaraderie in the back of how wrestling really is. And the world that we live in of circus life is uh, was awesome. And uh, just a lot of the, just the road was always fun too just driving up and down the road, with the same car and just telling stories of life and learning experiences from wrestling, what one person does something, why they did it or what made them do it. And you just learn off of each other and you find that good group of friends that you can be trustworthy with. And it's the same, like I said, it's the same as uh, Marine Corps in certain aspects, but to answer your question, that's pretty much a lot of the, the fun things of just being on the road and enjoying life, seeing things, going to Paris, wrestling a download festival, yeah. Ass. Like to just be able to go from wrestling in a ring and then go watch Parkway Drive kill it on stage was was cool. Marilyn Manson killing it. And uh just yeah, it was it was pretty cool to be wrestling not too far away from the tent from the main stage. And the British fans there were awesome. They're a whole different entity in the <laughs> world of wrestling. Okay, so yeah, I, I guess I I didn't uh, I didn't really think about that. It, does each like city have its own kind of vibe as a crowd, or is it just kind of standard because of like the uh, the fan base and like how that you know that kind of transcends through everybody because you're ninety nine percent of the time watching it through a screen. Yeah, so 
on that aspect, like when wrestling originally started, it was all in the territory days back in the day before WWF pretty much became, which became WWE, but WWE ended up buying territories and kind of taking over everything because TV was what was taking over at that time. So like every city you go to is very different. Some people react to certain things. Some people don't react to certain things. You could have a match one night and try it again the next night and try to do it. And you're not going to get the same exact reaction. And then it's funny because you go stateside and like Chicago, the Northeast, like Jersey, New York, and then you go to California, everybody acts different towards everything. Like Chicago is a great city to wrestle in. Um, and then you have the South, everybody pops for stuff from like the South, like the Dusty Roads era and like everything at that time. And then you have the UK and everything in Europe is very different because it's, it's still looked at sport as, as there as well. And then Japan's a different entity as well. And Japan, I, that's what on my bucket list to still go to wrestle. And then now I have the opportunity to possibly do that down the road, which I'm excited for. But yeah, just to experience that and see how those crowds react to certain things. And it's very different in certain territories where you go in the world globally. Do you have a favorite place? Um, I, I would imagine it probably would be in front of a home crowd, you know, with your family. But if, if you had to say, uh, uh, if, you, if you had a favorite place, what would it be? So far, I remember my buddy Tucker asked me, he's like, how was that your favorite match? Uh, it was in Paris. Uh, we it was the crowd was just so cool. The venue was an old circus venue with no AC, just old. It was so old and run down, but it was just a cool thing. Cause our ring was set up in the center of the rink of where like the circus run used to run. And like in the back, we were coming through where all the elephants and lions and tigers and everything we'd come back and we were getting dressed was in the stables area where it used to be. But that crowd, I don't know what it was, was just like it felt like right on top of you. It was hot. It smelled like crap, but it was fun. And I, don't, I can't really explain. Just like the vibe there was great because we were with Otis and Tucker. I don't know if you follow on SmackDown with Otis and Tucker. They were heavy machinery at that time. And then Blake and I were tagging. And it was just we didn't have to do anything. Like we were the opening match. That crowd was just red hot. And it was just, it was just one of those moments where we kind of all kind of stood there at one moment and we all kind of made eye contact knowing like what, like it was just a good vibe. And it was a lot of, it was just one of those crowds that was a lot of fun. A good day at the office then. Yeah. It was just, it felt like a night off and it's just like, wow, we don't have to really do anything. And then yeah, here we go killing ourselves. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, as with all things, uh, you know, chapters end and new chapters begin. So uh, what, what's next for you in life? Uh, well, the wrestling world is very open right now. Uh, there's so much more out opportunity outside of WWE, uh, which is the first time in a long time where that's been. We have AW, AEW, uh, you have Impact Wrestling, MLW, Japan, uh, with New Japan, and uh, NOAA Wrestling out there as well. And then just the independents on their own are starting to vibe up again because the world's starting to open up from COVID and things are getting back to normal in certain aspects in the wrestling world but not fully and live crowds are coming back. But for the future, for me, I'm, I'm very excited to just work everywhere and be a freelancer of being on independence and till I am signed somewhere else, which would happen eventually. But as of right now, I'm pretty much independent on my own and running as Steve Macklin for the first time in a long time. You know, obviously wish you the, the best of luck and in, in your endeavors and dreams in the future, but it's always it always, you know, it's always helpful kind of to, to have that dream. And it sounds like one of your future goals is to uh, wrestle in Japan. So how, how do you see that working out? Uh, I'm hoping it happens. Uh, it's just kind of yeah. getting, it's just 
getting that buzz out there of me and getting my credibility out there of who I am and now proving to people because of my time in WWE and what I was able to show there because you are under a microscope and kind of told what to do because it is a TV show. But now on the independence, I don't have a producer telling me everything I need to do for a match or come when I come back through the curtain saying, hey, you need to do this instead. You need to do this. Hey, you didn't do this uh, type thing. Now it's on me. And now I get to prove to everyone my worth and that I'm excited for because now everything is on me. And that's the one thing that I love. And I can't wait for that opportunity to just get out there. And May 5th is my end of my no compete clause with WWE as contract. So after that, it's the door is open to go work anywhere. That's fantastic. Uh, so say you, you found yourself at, uh, you know, at the best arena you could possibly imagine, like say the one you were talking about, and you could have uh, a match with any wrestler, uh, past or present, with any stipulation, uh, what what would be like? You know, if you make your create a character on you know one of the the wrestling games, and you know you set up your dream match, like uh, what would it be? Oof. Tough one. Uh, first off, it would be at the Garden in New York City, Madison Square Garden. Uh, and then I'd have to go with my all time favorite, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I don't like you can't. You want to have a fight and go against one of the best. I would like to go between him and his prime in that 98, 99 era. Uh, so, yeah. And stipulation would just be a straight up wrestling match. <laughs> I uh, uh, Last year, I uh, made a meme where it was just like, if you're having trouble, like, no, like, knowing how much space to keep for social distancing, keep approximately one Stone Cold Steve Austin in between you and everyone else. And I, I flipped his image and I, I put it sideways because I think he's like, build is like 6'2". And so I was like approximately one Stone Cold Steve Austin. And so I posted that and I tagged it and he liked it and I like screenshotted it. I put it on my story. I was like, that's it. Like I've made it. Like I made it <laughs> A meme about Stone Cold Steve Austin, and one, did I not only not get a mud hole stomped in me? Uh, two, he liked it. <laughs> oh, it's great. It's always a good feeling. Like that's still he's still the one guy I haven't met out of my favorites, and it's kind of crazy to be in the company for that long and not beat him. But yeah, yeah, I would say that uh, if it was me, it would probably have to be a tag team match of uh, me and Mankind versus. Uh, Triple H and Hurricane Helms. Okay. Why Hurricane Helms? He always made me laugh uh, in between, like when, when they would do the, uh, like, the behind the scenes uh, kind of like uh, takes, you know, where like they were doing like the interactions behind the stage that kind of led to, you know, whatever beef was being settled in the ring. And he just, he was just always so funny. And I think like with Triple H being such like uh, a very serious, particularly when he was like, you know, first came out as the cerebral assassin and you know, him being so serious. And then Hurricane Helms just being like a total like goober, you know, and, you know, mankind, like it just, you, you, I don't get me wrong. Dude, love and Cactus Jack was, was great and all that. But mankind was just, you know, just legendary for me growing up. And I would say that it would probably have to be, um somewhere like really epic even with like no crowd just like drones recording it like machu picchu or like antarctica which i know you are trading off the aspect of like the crowd energy and all that but at the same time like those visuals would be awesome you know yeah no in the background kind of like a mortal Kombat game type thing yes exactly <laughs> just a wasteland behind you you know or like some 
like in front of Petra Jordan or like uh, next to Stonehenge. Like, yeah, in the middle of Stonehenge. Like that's where the ring is. Set up a ring in the middle. Actually, I'm surprised that hasn't been done yet. <laughs> you imagine how much money they would have to pay to like grease I enough can't. palms. <laughs> I can't imagine. Hurricane Holmes is an awesome. He's a. He, I have had him produce a few matches, but I've known him for a long time as well. And he's he's so like you said though he's so funny backstage because he just has like funny ribs and he's a good he's a good human being too, and he's so talented. Yeah, and uh, you know just striking that one pose where he kind of like did a superhero pose and went down to one knee. Just always that like the like he had perfect timing with that. You know, it was just good shtick. Yeah. Just to- Overall, it, it, I think yeah, it was a gangs and wrestling consistently. Like that's where like it's that's where wrestling is entertaining. And if you if somebody makes you feel something, remember it. That's what makes you love it. Yeah, and so <laughs> I would definitely say that would be uh, my ideal if I had ever gone that route. You know, the sixteen year old and me doing uh, you know uh, snap mares and you know armbar takedowns and all you know uh, falcon arrow body slams all that kind of stuff memorizing all the vocabulary from the video games like okay these are the moves that we're gonna do uh is 16 year old me is like really geeking out over that so i I appreciate you being able to let me indulge that fantasy a little bit out loud that's the fun part it's more elaborate on what i wanted uh than just the garden and the straight up wrestling match but the garden is like the mecca of wrestling to me as a kid just go I went to a few live events there as a kid and I was, I was always a dream of it and still is a dream. So hopefully one day you never know. Yeah. Uh, if there's anything you'd like to add to, to, to your dream scenario, like I'm all ears, like I'm here for it. No, that's it. I would like to just go to toe to toe with my favorite wrestler of all time and see if I have it. Cause Austin just used to work at such a pace. And that's the one thing I would always love to watch. And I still love to watch now is he never stopped and you just see gave everything in every match. So that's one of those things that I was just uh, respected even now as a talent and still learning as we go. You're always green until the end. Anyway, you're always constantly learning and wrestling. Yeah, I, I could see that he, he definitely always seemed like whether he was winning the match or losing the match, like he was like the main performer, you know? Oh yeah. Cause like, it's the same, like, again, another Marine Corps term, you want your boot to somebody. You're always going to be green to somebody in wrestling. I'd say like me and, uh, you know, just some classic wrestler like, uh, Kevin Nash or <laughs> someone like that, you know, versus like Christian and edge and the Hardy boys and the Dudley boys and like a tables, ladders and chairs kind of match. Like, like just like that right there also was kind of one of those like dream scenarios, you know? Another dream scenario for me would probably be like Edge and Christian with me and Blake, you know, probably in a TLC match. That's one of those two because they're probably one of the better tag teams I loved as a kid. Yeah, it was it was always crazy because like the way that they were built was just so much different than like the majority of the other people that are around. Like you looked at like, you know, the Dudleys and the Hardy Boys and like the APA and stuff like that. They they're always just kind of like, look how tough we are. And, you know, just very gritty and blue collar. And then Christian and Edge come out and, you know, they're just beautiful human beings with fishnets and, you know, bright, uh, bright fluorescent uh, tights, you know, and. Uh, bedazzling and well even that they evolved and like they always had like the edginess to them when they were with gangrel and they were the brood coming up so it was like they were that cool factor of like almost lost boys at that beginning part and then they turned into these characters that just had the five second pose and it was entertaining as hell and it just made you laugh and no matter what they kind of let you in in some way but then when it was time for them to be just evil heels and just look like violent assholes they they did their job 
Yeah, that that's a good point. Uh, you know, it's great throwback with Gangrel. I'd completely forgotten all about that. One of those that's one of those entrances because I used to walk to school with uh the WWE CDs in my Walkman and I'd like walk to the playground with WWE volume three and volume four. And here I am walking through their entrances, trying to have that vibe of like Gangrel's song with the brood coming through. And you're just like, Oh, I'm cool as shit. When you look like a dork anyway, nobody <laughs> else knows what you're doing, but you think you're cool as shit. Right on. Uh, if you, if you had to pick any signature maneuver uh, b- besides like your own, like who, where would you rank like your top three? Uh, well, Stone Cold Stunner, number one, everybody yep. knows. Hunter is uh triple h's pedigree is up there for me too I, lo- I always thought it was a cool finisher and then um what would be another one goldberg spear yeah i think that at that time like everybody always did those moves rock bottoms up there uh wish i could do a lot of 450s and stuff like that but i'm never <laughs> but i always enjoyed like watching jeff hardy doing the swanton bomb yep I, I would have to say that uh, if I had to list my top three and like somehow magically give myself the ability to do these things, uh, it would probably be the five star frog splash, you know, okay. get up there, you know, hit the RVD and then bam, just launch yourself. Like that's, that's just amazing. I always uh, really respected the, uh, the Olympic slam uh, from Kurt Angle. Cause it was just one of those things where it just like always came out of nowhere, you know? Yeah very rarely was there kind of like the setup or you know like with the rock bottom typically he's on the other side of the ring and he's like or like with the stunner like he's waiting like he's a coiled spring you know and it, it the the olympic slam was always just kind of something like oh you know angle is like down and out and he's getting beat up and then boom you know he would hit it out of nowhere and that was it was always such like one of those moments like as a kid and a fan when you're watching the episode where like the tide would turn you know mm-hmm. Yeah, Kurt Angle's another one of those, too, like, I loved as a kid. Like, I know everybody hated him, but I was like, this guy, like, I remember seeing he had a dark match back to going sitting in nosebleeds at a Raw. He had a dark match, and I've been on plenty of dark matches before TVs. Like, you don't, you're going out there to get that crowd experience, or they have to do camera setups and stuff. But he was doing at that time, that's how they had their way of, like, seeing, getting talent used to crowds and seeing their reactions. And I remember being in the crowd for one of his, uh, dark matches and then a few weeks later he debuted at the survivor series and i was just like wait that's that's him like that was the i saw guy that guy <laughs> i didn't know his name at that time and i'm like that's kurt angle and i was instantly a fan just because i saw him he opened up the show not everybody was in the arena yet but it was still a great match and fun to watch as a kid and now being able to be in those scenarios later on in life it's just like you respect it more yeah i uh I, I could definitely see how that would that would be kind of one of those geek out moments. I remember my buddy and I, I think we we're like 16 at the time, and Trish Stratish came walking out. And I think Stacy Ke- uh, Keebler came out too. And at that time, like if you're a wrestling fan and you're a teenage boy, like that's like the yeah. epitome. You see like some of these people in person, your jaw just kind of drops. And like, man, I didn't realize like Big Show was that big or that, you know, like Trish Stratish's smile was like that bright, you know? Yeah, no, it's funny. Like once you meet people like, at first, like, you know, like I remember one of my first interactions in NXT, like meeting somebody who I think obviously Hunter uh, Triple H, but I remember meeting Sean uh, Michaels and then Bret Hart and like oh, the kid in me was so excited, but I'm like, all right, don't be a mark. Don't be a mark. But like, you're just like, ah, like the little kid in you is just like, wow, I'm actually like, you take it in later on. You're just like, wow, I just met them. But then after a while, it just becomes used to it to where it's just like, you're at work and you're just like, Hey, how are you? It's very nice to meet you finally. And like really respect your work uh, growing up and, uh, any pointers you can give me type thing. It's just now you look to them as mentors. 
Well, that's, that's amazing. And I, um, I, I appreciate your insight. And um, I, I guess the, the final question that I'll ask you is, um, you know, a lot of times when people get into something that, you know, is a little bigger than life, whether it be a career like that or the military, it's kind of hard to see uh, what comes beyond that. And so when, when you entered the military and when you entered into wrestling, kind of what was your mindset as far as like, how long did you think you were going to be a part of this? Like, did you kind of plan for a future afterwards or was this something that you just kind of didn't see over the wall? Uh, definitely did not see it over the wall. Um, it's kind of crazy. Uh, my girlfriend and I just moved into a house here and I wouldn't have been able, and we were talking about it the other day, it was like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have told you I would have been buying a house here in Orlando living in Florida. I thought I was going to end up in New Jersey the rest of my life, but you have to kind of look at life just as an open book because things are constantly going to change. And even when I was 19, 20 going into the Marine Corps, I had no idea what I was doing. I knew I was getting in to go fight uh, for my country and what I thought was the thing at that time, but then it just turned into fighting for the guys that were next to me. And that evolved my, just my mindset on everything. And then when I got denied my MESEP uh, cause the tattoo policy at that time was very strict. And my gunny at that time kind of told me, said, Hey, it's not going to go through as, all right, well, I'll just do it on my own. Then I'll go out and see how I can make a career out of, uh, going to school and then in, in wrestling itself and see what I can do. And it's just worrying about what you can control and just kind of going off of life. And you're not going to be able to control everything. All you can do is worry about what you're doing yourself and what you can do. Uh, as long as you take care of yourself, your family, and that's really kind of it. Everything kind of just falls into place at times. And as shitty things can get sometimes, it always could be worse. Fair point. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to, um, to, to join us. And, you know, I, I really hope that uh, some of the, the people who are in positions now, whether they're just gotten out or they're considering getting out, like they, uh, I'm sure a lot of them will be able to compared to how they feel now to where you were and to kind of use that as inspiration. And so uh, where can our uh, listeners find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Steve Macklin. Uh, I also, my pro wrestling tea store, if you want to have a Steve Macklin t-shirt, um, I'm working on a bunch of stuff to do towards veteran programs uh, for as charity programs as well. It's to just help out the veteran community uh, in that way too, just because I, I feel that's one thing is, I think more respect of what our men and women do for the military is, needs to be instilled a little bit more these days. Uh, and I don't let them be forgotten as cheesy as that sounds. Cause I was part of the forgotten sons, but like that's kind of was part of the inspiration of why we called ourselves that in a way, but yeah, find me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, my pro wrestling tea stores. I don't have a Facebook uh, and then obviously now on podcasts, live interviews, and then, Anywhere I promote to come out to wrestling shows, feel free to come up. If you're a veteran, I don't mind talking. If you have a problem, good, bad, and different, I'll sit and gladly listen to stories and talk and just shoot the shit and treat it like we are around the spoke pit. Awesome, man. Well, uh, as, are there any organizations or um, uh, causes that, that you'd like to shout out? Um, a organization I worked with a lot with uh, actually Brian Stan. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah. Um, with Higher Heroes USA, it actually uh, is a very good program. WWE was very affiliated with it too, uh, to helping uh, men and women from military transition back into the reality of a real life job and kind of like steps and taps, uh, but better. Uh, they help you with your resumes and just getting you acclimated and getting you out there to companies that help you find employment outside of uh, the military. And it's just one of those organizations that I respect a lot for what they do. 
and they helped me along the way, especially with meeting veterans as well. And that community, without it, I wouldn't be on this podcast without veteran outreach and talking to other veterans, my buddy Tanner, and I can't thank him enough. Yeah, just thinking off the fly on that. But um, yeah, Hire Heroes is probably one of those uh, programs that I would like if, if you are a veteran trying to transition into the real world, that is where I feel you should go to uh, for an outsource for help. Uh, they're very good at what they do and um, they don't they don't hesitate to answer you back either, which is the best part about it too. Well, that's awesome. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, like to touch base here in the future. And I, I, uh, I actually grew up in Orlando. Uh, so a little, little bit of Fenley, Bryce, stay away from Orange Blossom Trail if no one's told you that yet. <laughs> I've heard. Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, that was the first place I ever got robbed was Orange Blossom Trail. The, uh, the guy came up, he had his gun. Uh, we we're just uh, in the car. We we're just buying some beer and uh he was like give us your beer and your money and your shoes and i was like dude like i don't want to give you my shoes like come on that's like that's embarrassing and and so he's like all right and he's and we're just like hey like come on man like you just took all of our money at least let's get some of that beer back so we can still party tonight and he was like all right and he gave us the beer back <laughs> and then <What> random robber <laughs> i know like i'm like 16 and i mean 21 and uh <laughs> My uh, my buddy hits him with the uh, the car door, and um, the guy driving, he was like, "Punch it!" And so we we sped off, and uh, it it was like one of the most surreal moments of my life because I'm like, okay, like this is the first time that I'm being like armed robbed, and here we are like negotiating with our uh, our armed robber, <laughs> and so it's 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 definitely a very uh, weird cornucopia of um, things that are almost too good to believe in Orlando. Shoes though, right? Yeah, like, and and because like I I always kept my extra cash in my shoes just for that instant, you know. Like if somebody, you know, runs your pockets, then uh, you know, you'd at least have money to like get food and go home. And yeah, either the shoes or the bill of my baseball cap. Yeah, and so this guy was like, and he's like, "Give me your shoes too." And like, I was twice his size. He was a scrawny little guy, but I was in the back seat of this like little two door Mustang. Uh, it was a V4 that my buddy had like murdered out and put, you know, blacked out everything and then bought uh, the 5.0 decals and then just like fucked with the um, the the exhaust to make it sound louder. <laughs> like that might be the most Florida thing I've said in a while. But yeah, so maybe that's why he thought we had money. <laughs> that's great, though, because, yeah, my first car. Well, now that we're on that, my first car was an 89 Camaro in New Jersey. And it was funny because a lot of my friends in my hometown, like I had BMWs and all these rich cars. And here I am driving a, a friggin' fixer upper of an 89 Camaro, brand new tires I had to put on, new stereo system, but I worked for it. And it was my favorite friggin' car in the world. And after about a year, the um, chip to the key and like whatever was in the friggin' ignition itself to the actual uh, engine was not working at that time anymore. So it would randomly want to start or randomly wouldn't start or randomly while you're driving would just shut off. Oh, man. So here I am not knowing anything about cars and it's just one of those fun memories of just, uh, yeah, but never, never got held at gunpoint for my shoes and some money. That sucks. You know, looking back at it, I could laugh, but at the time it was just more annoying than anything because, you know, when, when you're a kid and you're working hard, you know, and you're making your like seven bucks an hour and it's Friday night, you and your boys are going to go, you know, party and have a, have a good time. And then you get robbed and you're like, dude, that was like, that was like five days worth of pay right there. Yeah. And let alone the best part is that you negotiated with them like that, like that guy somewhere. It's just like, how did you not like, no, I have a gun. Shut up. Give me everything. <laughs> <I just left." laughs> yeah. It's um, 
I, I think that's probably why I ended up going into podcasting because uh, conversations with people uh, definitely very rarely go where you expect them to. Yeah. That's the best part about it is you can have a plan and idea of uh, what you think you're going to talk about and you go somewhere else. And that's the fun part. Yeah. Well, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for your time, for uh, joining us here in the smoke pit and uh, make sure you guys uh, go check out Steve and uh, all his future endeavors. Cause I know there's gonna be some big things coming down uh, here in, in the near, near future. But other than that, uh, if you need help, reach out, there's always someone there to talk uh, fair winds following seas. And we'll see you next time here in the smoke pit. look handsome as fuck well then you should try combat comb over for your hair and your face and your beard and then once you have all that additional swagger you need something to carry it around in use the nut ruck by arbor arms and while you're uh, carrying that nut ruck you should also remember to keep yourself as fresh as possible because you never know what might happen when you're looking that good so keep yourself some body powder from hollywood powder company use our discount code smoke pit on all of our sponsors to save yourself some money